0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing Robert Eggers' briny, unhinged new film, The Lighthouse, starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as 19th century lighthouse keepers off the coast of rural Maine who begin to lose their minds over the course of the tenure on a remote island. This film, very good, very stinky. I think I opened my review of this talking about how smelly the film is because obviously while it does not have smell of vision it really is evocative. It is a historical drama that really sort of really likes to just get down into there, into the armpit of history.
1: I too, at one point in the movie, literally thought to myself, I can smell this. And the first thing I said upon leaving was they should do that in 4DX. So we're on the <laughs> same page here. Read the smell. Yes. Oh, it's- <laughs>
0: As regular listeners will know, we're big fans of Robert Pattinson. Willem Dafoe, of course, a legend. We have two very well-suited actors for this, and I find it very delicious that director, writer Robert Eggers cast them without them screen testing together, because obviously they're both too big and famous and diva-ish to have any of that audition malarkey beforehand. So um, he was like, I'm just going to hope that these two work well together. They have very appropriate faces for the role. They're both, both very angular. They both have very different acting styles. Um, as we will discuss later in the podcast. But for now, we're going to start off with a little intro to Robert Eggers, who is somewhat of a critical darling.
1: Yes, so this is only his second film. So if you've never heard of him, that is more than understandable. His first film was The Witch a few years ago, which was a huge sensation at Sundance and uh, was picked up by A24 there. It was a horror movie set in like Puritan, New England, I think Massachusetts and the dialogue was taken almost exclusively from written material that has survived from that period
0: and sort of mashed together. Yeah, so if you imagine the crucible, but less comprehensible, it was like much more historical sounding historical dialogue than anyone is used to.
1: Yes, and I did not like it at all. I mean, the filmmaking was impressive in certain ways, and it made um, Anya Taylor-Joy, the main actress, sort of a breakout figure, where she was very good in it. But I found the historical approach regarding the dialogue very alienating. And that period of history is a period that I learned about literally every single year in school until I was probably 14, because I am from Massachusetts. (laughs) So I was like, yes, I, I get what you're trying to do. But like, this is a little bit much like, okay. And I was talking a little bit with a friend after we saw this movie about his sort of He definitely has a fetish for the historical components of the movies he makes, which we'll talk a little bit more with regards to The Lighthouse, but I think that that can lead you to doing some things perhaps a little bit much, and isn't inherently a virtue, I think. I mean, historical research is great, like I do it with my own projects, but like it's not necessary to be like 100% accurate because you can't be it's not possible right like we live in the 21st century and I think with the witch it just felt like it was excessive in the service of what exactly and I didn't find it scary either which was a different issue and I was sort of not taken with that and was not particularly looking forward to his upcoming work based on that although I had heard from a friend that he was a very nice man, which is a nice thing to hear about a man in Hollywood. You don't hear it often. Um, And then this film premiered at festivals and
0: everyone was like, what the fuck? They're very different types of film.
1: Yeah. And so I was excited about it and I liked it a lot, which was nice.
0: I mean, I also, I, so I saw the witch not when it came out, but I saw it last year or something. I am obviously much more into horror than you. I liked it, but I also wasn't super invested in it. You know, I I found it more interesting than kind of personally compelling until they got to the really sort of witchy parts, at which point I was like, this is fun. But so these films kind of have a very different approach artistically and a different tone, but you can really see that historical obsession kind of behind it. And obviously, Morgan said, you know, you can go a bit too far, you can have a bit too much with this sort of thing. I kind of love that Eggers goes way overboard because it's sort of the extreme end of historical accuracy in a way that you don't see in other films. And I, I love historical dramas, and I also am very interested just in the kind of concept of historical accuracy and the way it's kind of described both by filmmakers and by audiences, because obviously there is no such thing as historical accuracy. It doesn't exist. Um, and a lot of the time, the things that people think of as accurate are very superficial. Like when you get all this promotional work for uh, historical costume dramas that really focuses heavily on like infinitesimal details in costuming. And then obviously the story is like an extremely stylized, well-structured narrative that bears no resemblance to real life and all of the actors obviously look like modern day movie stars and that sort of thing. So basically there is no such thing as historical accuracy. And most historical movies that are really great are, in fact, actively inaccurate. So it's like the favorite and like more entertaining films, like A Knight's Tale or something. They're all historical dramas and they're better than if someone is trying to make some kind of really intensive recreation of real life, because a lot of the time that kind of attitude just lends itself to being overly gritty and focusing on sort of unpleasantness. With both of these films by Robert Eggers, he's clearly obsessed with period accuracy, but in a way that is much more to do with getting into the mindset of the period. So the thing about the witch that I actually found more interesting than the dialogue style is that all of the kind of fantasy elements in it come from the viewpoint of believing and accepting that all superstition from this Puritan period is true. So instead of it being a story where it's like, oh, there's a scary witch or, oh, it's really upsetting that people are alienating these people because they think they've been cursed by a witch, but it's actually not real, like in the actual, you know, like in reality. It is just like, yeah, straightforwardly, if you do this certain unlucky thing, then you get cursed, you know, or if you think bad thoughts, then the devil is real. And with The Lighthouse, you have something similar, but like working in a very different way. So he's simultaneously telling a story that plays into sort of a lot of tropes of seafaring mythology and sort of folktales and that sort of thing. It's also set in a very specific period, but it's also filmed in a style that's from a different period. So it's set in the kind of, I think like mid to late 19th century But obviously, films didn't exist then. So it's like filmed in the style of a movie from like the kind of maybe just the kind of silent era or shortly after the silent era, sort of 20s, 30s. It uses a lot of kind of camera lenses and uh, visual styles that fit in with that period of filmmaking. So you've got several different elements feeding into each other. And also it is very kind of surreal in some places, which also kind of fits into that like black and white 1920s, 30s movie style.
1: Yeah, he. there was a good interview I read with him on The Verge that we'll link to, where he talks in pretty granular detail about the technical approach they used in regard to camera lenses and stuff, which some of it went over my head, obviously, but some of it was, was interesting. And he was saying that they were using some of these old-fashioned lenses, but then also like the lighting that they were using was not a technique that would have been used at that time. It's a modern technique. Yeah the sort of by the sea kind of documentary style film was a big thing in the twenties at the sort of beginning of the movie boom it makes sense that when you first are able to film things, something like the ocean would be very appealing to people to try to capture. And also the idea of going to these kind of remote rural towns, especially in um, the British Isles where people still are perhaps living in a more kind of archaic fashion from a like early anthropological Point of view, people were sort of like, "Ooh, we can we can film the natives, right?" <laughs> like, um, in like Scotland and Ireland, and so there are definitely some um, influences from that in a more general way, as opposed to like the exact particulars of what he's shooting. And so it is this interesting mix of of things because those kinds of films were not so much being made in like Maine, right? And obviously not <laughs> in the eighteen seventies or whatever, because there were no cameras. So. Yeah, I really liked the visuals of this. I'm a sucker for any time something is um shot in a letterboxed aspect ratio because I like old movies so much whenever... A- I
0: love a fun aspect ratio. I think this was like really early on when the trailer first came out. I was like really fixating on the aspect ratio, like tweeting like, oh, it's a 1.19 one aspect ratio as if anyone gives a shit about that. But it's like, you know, like films during the kind of 20s and 30s and 40s were basically square shaped. This was like a very specific angle of square shape that they chose i think just for shits and giggles but um
1: more square than in fact that would have been
0: yes it was like a very rare type of uh, it wasn't like the precise one that was the most commonly used it had like a very short window of use that was it was it was in like one movie by the director of metropolis but not actually metropolis so (laughs) that kind of situation but there was also like morgan said along with them using these vintage lenses it has like very different looking lighting. Like the film is actually very dark visually. Like a lot of it takes place in the night, but like the way that the light reflects is very different from when you watch like a contemporary black and white movie or even a contemporary movie that's intentionally trying to look like it's from the 1930s. And one of the things that I think you can really pick up on is the grain of the character's skin. You can see like so much more and there's much more cragginess just in all of the textures and it works really well, you know, with moonlight on water or a kind of firelight inside the house and that sort of thing. And it just feels like when you see just a photo of someone from, you know, a hundred years ago it's incredibly effective.
1: Yes, it's very high contrast the lighting style. So you'll get these shots of like Willem Dafoe's
0: extremely craggy face. Oh, there's some like- great skulls in this movie. The skull quality, just <laughs> primo skulls. <laughs>
1: i think multiple quotes in like various interviews with robert eggers being like yeah they have a lot of cheekbones (laughs) so it's it's true high cheekbone quotient with both these actors you chose well for your you know dramatically lit weirdo black and white film to
0: have like willem dafoe right (laughs) he of the like crazy face i was yeah when i was watching the film i was like I know in my brain that Robert Pattinson is like a famed hottie, but as soon as you add like a big mustache to that, he does look like a photograph of an 1890s laborer because he's so gaunt and it's just like, this is fantastic. And of course, they're wearing all these like horrible sort of saggy clothes and sweaters because it's very cold and wet. Yes. But yeah, we should talk about the actual uh, content of the film. Yes. So Pattinson plays this obviously younger man the intern. He plays the intern.
1: Yes, he shows up. He's supposed to be there for four weeks, basically training to learn how to work a lighthouse. He previously has worked as a logger. His name is Ephraim Winslow, which uh, oh, a magnificent name. New England name, <laughs> like perfect. And uh, he is doing the grunt work, essentially. And the Will Defoe's character is Thomas Wake, and he refuses to let him do anything to do with the actual light in the lighthouse. And it's just like, do more with the coal. And this is not great for Ephraim. And they immediately have this sort of strange dynamic where he can't really complain about anything. And it's this like tiny little rock they're living on and they can't get away from each other. And um, Defoe's character is incredibly abrasive from the outset and at first, the sort of first half an hour, maybe of the movie, it's still weird, but they're kind of attempting to
0: behave. It's within the bounds of a normal awkward relationship between yes. an evil boss and an overworked intern.
1: Right, and then it just totally
0: <laughs> just goes off the rails into this film is weirdo hilarious. Territory. It is very, very funny which doesn't necessarily come through initially in the description or perhaps in the trailers. I think even in cinemas, people have very radically different responses. But I think Morgan and I both found this movie laugh out loud funny. <laughs> oh, my my audience, which was like Upper West Side,
1: New York, lots of old people, raucous. Just like, I, I mean, I was laughing my ass off. Everyone was laughing their asses off. It was a great time at the cinema. <laughs> like, it was really excellent, excellent, extremely entertaining. Oh,
0: There's just so many fantastic historical one-liners spoken in pirate voices by Willem Dafoe. Lots of farts, a lot of farts in this film. <laughs> it took me a little bit to
1: get on the level with it, I think. And I think the movie kind of gets into a different gear, yeah, as we were saying. And the first 15 minutes in particular are very kind of just like here is an image of a lighthouse or like the water or whatever. And I was like, okay, like this looks nice, but you know, sure. And then it just progressively gets weirder and weirder until you're like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And so funny. I still, there's, I would really like to see it again. There was something about it that felt just like a little inaccessible to me or, narrow, not in a literal way, although, yes, the image was narrow, but, like, the, my impression of it in, in the first 15 minutes, which then faded, was that, like, it was very into itself as a film, right? Like, they... It's taking itself a little bit too seriously, and then it gets really weird and strange and fun, and I... but by the end, I still was like, this, this movie is a little bit up itself. Like, just a bit, in a way, that I found was keeping me from fully getting inside of it, and... What the point of it all was? I'm not really sure. Pierre had a great time watching it, <laughs> right? I mean, this is the thing. Like, I had an absolutely great time watching it. I would recommend this to anyone who is up for like a weird movie with lots of bodily fluids and like just strange, twisted shit. But like, I went came out and I was like, well, I'm not sure like what I learned from this. <laughs> like, it was just weird, which is fine, but. I felt like it was trying to be something that wasn't quite what I experienced, which is okay. But it was like A minus, not A, if you see what I mean.
0: <laughs> Whereas I was just like extremely receptive because it was, it was right in my zone, you know?
1: Yes. Oh, yes.
0: Like, obviously, I, I think it's quite clear that I love if stuff is really making an effort to be super pretentious. But then it's also, yes, of course, they are very much invested in their own genius in this film. But crucially, the film is very absurd both in the sense that it has these sort of 1920s, 1930s style sort of dream sequences. You know, there's a whole mermaid hallucination subplot. There is some comedy seagulls, but also the characters themselves, like the film is constantly poking fun at them and they're both like disastrous and awful, but in a way that's inherently comical. And it's, I think a lot of people have also compared it a lot to Samuel Beckett partly because it's like this two person film, but like the dialogue is really having a lot of fun well, I think, I think it is just like, if you're thinking about it in the right emotional sense, it's all extremely easy to absorb. And then afterwards, I'm just like, I just kept thinking of all these images from it where I was like, oh, that was just so delicious. I had just a delicious, yummy meal. <laughs> Although also, it was completely repulsive. Like, this film is disgusting. It's also like one of those movies where. It really illustrates how dirty everything was historically <laughs> and also what a fucking nightmare it was for everyone to just be drunk all the time <laughs> because there were a lot of periods, especially in European history and the in like early US where it was just like, just drink all the booze because like really life is quite hard. And in this case, they're both doing that and also there's nothing else to do on the island and also Willem Dafoe's character is a full-on alcoholic and it's like, can you imagine having a hangover in a place where you don't have access to soap Or clean water, it's a nightmare. Well, and they have to drink because the water's bad. (laughs) And they just both look so disgusting. But at the same time, very horny and sexy. Very horny film. There's a lot of phallic imagery in this, it's very Freudian. The homoeroticism is interesting because I think people's assumption when something's described as homoerotic or people talk about like homoeroticism in the context of a film that stars two men. I think quite a lot of people maybe went into this film with a misapprehension that it was going to be a Back Mountain situation. I've definitely seen social media posts to that effect, and I was like, oh boy, no. Because the film is homoerotic, which is something that both Robert Pattinson and Robert Eggers have talked about in terms of the intentional purpose of the film. But it, <laughs> it's more about kind of the eroticization of the male body and the fact that also these people are both in very close proximity, it is not about them being attracted to each other. <laughs> that is not an element that is meant to be a play here, I think.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you are absolutely correct that it is very homoerotic, but not in a way that I personally found like sexually appealing, if that makes no, any sense. No, it's They're both right? really
0: gross. They're very gross. <laughs>
1: Well, but it's also weirdly... So, like, we've talked before about Robert Pattinson about how he's never hot in movies, right? Like, he just... But he's definitely hotter in this movie than he has been in a long time, but also gross. And (laughs) you don't... Like, the relationship between the two of them is not, like sexy but it is
0: sexual like it's very interesting kind of well like visually he looks very good right because like this is definitely a film where robert pattinson is handsome and chiseled and wears nice old-fashioned clothes that are appealing well, and, like, doesn't, like, takes his shirt off a lot yeah, and more takes than his he has Yeah, yeah. he has, like, there's lots of intentional scenes of sort of rippling muscles, and then the camera will cut to, like, a big picture of the lighthouse to make sure you definitely are thinking of the concept right, exactly. of a boner. But, <laughs> but also, also, of course, he is spending the whole time having a big old shit fit and, like, vomiting <laughs> and screaming about people and saying that Willem Dafoe smells of foreskin. So... <laughs> Well it also curdled foreskin, I believe, was the term.
1: Yes. It gets progressively worse. Filthier. Right? So like earlier in the movie, there are a couple of shots of him like shoveling coal without a shirt on that are clearly meant to be like, oh, look at this sexy young man. And then it just fully gets into him being like losing it in a way where like you cannot possibly find that person attractive. I mean, if you can, I guess good for you, but also like what? <laughs> and so it's sort of breaking down the idea that you have of this guy, which the movie does in various ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, structurally in that regard, it's very much like a stage play.
1: Yes. It bears a lot of resemblance to a stage play in many ways, though obviously, like all the visuals are incredibly cinematic. and A lot of the set pieces are not something you could do on a stage. But the fact that it's, just, it's a two-man show, the Beckett comparison makes a lot of sense because they're just going at it for two hours you know with all of this dialogue and uh so they're breaking down sort of the presentation of him that he has put forward but also that the movie has of him at the beginning as sort of this somewhat respectable handsome young man who's just trying to make his way in life and by the end he's i mean i won't say what exactly he does at the end but it's just beyond belief right like totally outside of the bounds of normal acceptable human behavior in society so that's interesting. Like that progression is interesting. Whereas the Willem Dafoe character is just in that case the whole time. Like he doesn't have an arc in the movie at all, which is fine. Like like he's just, he's just doing his thing. It's very amusing. He has one really long speech sort of two thirds of the way
0: through maybe. So fun. Oh it is God. incredibly fun speech.
1: <laughs> it's like Shakespeare.
0: Like, I, yeah, mean- I mean, it's like he's, he's, he has this whole thing where he's like screaming about the curses of Neptune. Just the, Sheer poetry of that dialogue is beyond belief.
1: <laughs> Incredible. And he's sort of shot as Neptune a couple of times. I mean, he's got this huge beard. Just great stuff.
0: <laughs> Something I think a few people, this is a very small crossover audience, but I definitely even had a couple of people messaging me asking about this because I think people knew that I'd seen the film Cold Skin, which has a very similar premise to this movie, It is a horror film that came out a couple of years ago. It's not a big horror film. It's like a smaller indie movie. And it's about, once again, two lighthouse keepers, like an older one and a younger one. And the younger one goes to join the older one, who it turns out is really weird and erratic and scary. And there is a mermaid element, although it then kind of goes in a very different direction. And I think some people were like, wow, this is like suspiciously similar. And I definitely would not say that. I mean, I feel like the concept of, two lighthouse keepers in an enclosed space and one of them going mad is like an intrinsic idea which is very appealing and very obvious to choose also obviously like this film has been in the process of being written for ages like it was originally drafted by Robert Eggers' uh, brother Max who has the co-writing credit but um, Cold Skin I would kind of recommend Um, I would warn that it does include sexual assault but it's a pretty entertaining and somewhat silly but very gross historical horror movie uh, with cool, weird, amphibious mermaid characters and uh, and two lighthouse keeper men, one of whom is played by the guy who plays Blackbeard in uh, Black Sails, and he's very fun. So, Where does that one take um, place? Uh, okay, let me check. Um, okay, no, it's a remote island in the South Atlantic, and the younger of the two men uh, goes to work as a meteorologist while the older guy is like the normal lighthouse keeper and is mad and weird. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Strange film, though. (laughs) And stylistically completely different. I mean, I think the thing that people remember about The Lighthouse is not the basic concept of two men in a lighthouse, which I mean, there's been like various lighthouse disasters which have inspired plenty of historical stories like this. It's more about kind of the style of this movie that you remember.
1: Yes. Although the interviews they've given have definitely heavily relied upon stories about how wet and cold they were. (laughs)
0: shooting Oh, yeah. I mean, the experience of making this film has made for some very entertaining interviews, and I am very happy to be seduced by someone's, you know, marketing press campaign if you've got some interesting stories, you know? Yes. I mean, Robert Pattinson, a great interview. Oh, God, such a good interview. He is simultaneously one of those, like, pretentious method actor guys but also doesn't respect himself at all and has a great sense of humor and is really perverse which is kind of ideal because most of those sort of oh I really immerse myself in the role method actors are either overly self-serious and obnoxious or they seem like the kind of person who could never work with a woman and we know that Robert Pattinson personally sought out working with Claire Denis and she loves him and I'm like that is a good sign off on a twatish young man. I respect it. (laughs)
1: He's also not like properly method. No, he's like medium method. Yes. I mean, I think like I've read interviews with him where he's like, no, that's not, you know. I mean, he'll do weird shit, but it's not, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. And also
0: the weird shit is what gets the headlines because everyone wants to see a headline where it's like Robert Pattinson pissed himself in the movie. And I'm like, I read the interview and I was like, I feel like in a few months, he might just admit that he didn't piss himself while making (laughs) this movie. I don't think that actually happened. Yes. I mean, he's been known
1: to do that before, I will say my biggest qualm with this movie, which I found mostly found just very entertaining, but was terrible, was Mr. Pattinson's
0: accent, which he is historical Canadian, historical Canadian.
1: Where did you see Canadian? Because all the interviews I read, they said it was Maine farmers was what was inspiring that. And uh, let me tell you, as someone who is from New England, nobody has ever sounded like that. Ever, I've conferred with multiple other New Englanders to assess the accuracy and skill of this accent, and we were all just like, "What the fuck is happening?" It was kind of amazing to behold because if you haven't seen this yet, he basically shifts from like the first third, maybe. So maybe this is what he's supposed to be—you know, more sane. He just sounds generic American, basically like me, and then all of a sudden he starts throwing in this like JFK shit every once in a while and i was like what the fuck is happening and i just googled it and it
0: turns out that i did pull canadian out of my ass i don't know where canadian came from but it's a historical accent and i still love it
1: no because it's like he'll do jfk then it sounds like he's from brooklyn and then he's just doing generic american again all in the span of a scene i was like robert no (laughs) the jfk thing was the most entertaining to me because he sounds exactly like him every once in a while in this movie and I was like what? (laughs) Like no but it was another
0: case of the Boston accent defeating yet another actor. Meanwhile his French accent in The King the only good part of the movie (laughs) if when The King comes out on Netflix just go in there watch the Patterson scenes and get yourself out.
1: (laughs) Oh oh boy. Uh, Yeah I mean I'm from Boston, obviously not Maine, but I did enjoy the sort of deep entrenched New England quality to this, even though it's obviously in certain ways, very abstract and just like nuts and weird. We were discussing obviously his sort of historical period fetishism. And there's a lot of stuff that feels very particular as well, which was really enjoyable to me. You have some
0: personal lighthouse experience (laughs) apparently that you would like to share I I put in our little planning document I was like I need to make sure to like talk about my lighthouse experience and it turns out that Morgan didn't know what I was talking about (laughs) Uh, but I've spent an extensive period of my life in a lighthouse as a child every year my family stayed in a lighthouse in a remote Scottish island with no electricity that was our holiday
1: I did actually know this, but... Yeah, it yeah. is
0: it is a key element of my upbringing. And it was just like a mile-long island with a lot of puffins, and you stay in a lighthouse. And I believe they have now installed electricity, but they didn't have that at any point when I was living there. And you just live in a, in a little bunk, and you make a wood stove. But it is a 19th century lighthouse, which had the Fresnel lens, which is the lens you see in this movie that the lighthouse keepers are obsessed with, where kind of the way they make it shine so bright, because obviously the early lighthouses were long before electricity is they have these giant prisms that just like reflect and reflect and reflect um, through all these sort of curved kind of pyramid shaped tubes of solid glass, basically. Um, It's quite hard to describe, but you can Google like a lighthouse lens. That is what was in the lighthouses of my childhood, Uh, (laughs) where you could sneak up the spiral staircase and check out the lighthouse part, which was obviously defunct by the time We went there and there was like a main one which functioned. And there was also uh, foghorns, which I climbed up into a few times, uh, which definitely was not safe and children were not allowed to do because I would have died. But uh, (laughs) I didn't, so that's fine. (laughs) But it was nice to see that the foghorn action in this film, it's like the one of the key kind of scouting location things that Robert Eggers wanted is he was like, it needs to be in this historical period because I want a Fresno lens and I want like a foghorn and I want that combo. Which is <laughs> just, just, I lo- I really respect that type of obsessive detail. And um, in the film, this foghorn is like constantly blasting out, which is really disruptive and chaotic and awful in amongst all these roiling seas and so on. But then also it is combined with Willem Dafoe's fart noises, and then a, a soundtrack, which is kind of... Some of the soundtrack is orchestral. Um, It's really gorgeous. It's by the same composer who did the music for The Witch, which is just this really interesting combination of sort of historical and then more, more modern orchestral music. But in this soundtrack, there's just like blasts of atonal, foghorn-esque sounds from, I assume, probably a bassoon or maybe like a muted saxophone or something. And it sounds awful, and I love it. The music for this film is... Tremendously unsettling and gross.
1: <laughs> yes, I really thought the sound design was great because you want to feel unnerved, which you are, and all the foghorn noises or like foghorn
0: imitation noises add to that in a really effective yep. way. We often talk about how much we like films that make us feel bad and sometimes it's like, I love a depressing film or like I love an upsetting film. This is definitely a film that makes you feel weird. You know, there's elements of it that are gross and bad and horrible things obviously happen to the main characters. But it's not horror, really, in any particular. And it's not depressing. And because it's so kind of absurdly funny, it, it really provokes a unique combination of emotion, which I have to respect. And that's part of why, obviously, people talk about it so much. Because you watch it and you're just like... I don't know what the fuck's happened. It's like one of those weird like frat bro challenges where they put like all the condiments into a glass of beer and then you have to drink it. That is the experience <laughs> of watching this movie.
1: Well, it's been really interesting to me to watch people kind of try to classify it, right? Because everyone wants to try to call it a genre film in some capacity. And it's not.
0: It's just a weird movie. It's an art film. It's like a historical art film. What, what genre is this? Well, there's some good interviews with Robert Eggers where he talks about how he wants to be thought of as a genre filmmaker because it allows him more creative freedom and it allows him to have a cult audience. So like they can market this film kind of towards people who like The Witch, even though the actual conceptual crossover is like nil.
1: (laughs) Well, right. This is what's so interesting to me is that to me, this is an example of like, I literally turned to my friend when it was over and I just like started laughing like a maniac and I was like I love art like <laughs> because it was so fucking weird and like who gets the idea to do this right and art film or whatever I'm doing you know quotation marks with my fingers doesn't have to be you know portrait lady on fire which I thought was an amazing movie I'm not dissing that at all but like that's a very sort of everything
0: is very perfectly framed and it has ideas and like, you know. Yeah. I mean, do you know what this movie has more in common with than The Witch? Climax.
1: I have not seen it, but that makes a lot of sense.
0: Climax is like a long art film that came out last year and it is about a dance troupe in Europe whose drinks get spiked. And then it's just a fully real-time hour and a half long movie about a whole bunch of professional modern dancers having a bad trip not with any special effects, you're just seeing what they're doing. I think that that has more in common with this than like the kind of ways that people are trying to describe this as fantasy or horror. And kind of the fact that it does have this mermaid element is like somewhat deceptive because after I finished watching the film and I was thinking about all the silent movie influences, I was sort of Googling all of the silent films and just shortly post-silent films like early talkies that have dream sequences. And it was an incredibly common theme in early cinema because obviously when film is a very recent invention, then of course what people are going to want to illustrate is surreal dreams because it's the first time you've been able to illustrate this in like a really evocative way. And that is what you're seeing here with The Mermaid. I mean, obviously at this point, it's like, oh, I'm spoiling The Mermaid isn't real. Like, fuck it. Like, it's a dream. He's having weird (laughs) dreams about a mermaid. Um, But it's very much in keeping with that sort of early silent and early talky cinema where it's like, oh, we're just going to have this sequence with like a bunch of sexy elves or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what people are basically reacting to in regards to the genre conversation, part of it is that A24 is deliberately trying to market it in that way. Like, it was at Fantastic yeah, Smarts, which is very like, smart. Right. Yeah. I'm not criticizing yeah. them at all, but it's definitely like the people on the receiving end of this are also kind of grappling with this in a sort of absurd way, I think. And it's just, like, it's fun. That's the only <laughs> yes. thing. It's like people are having fun, and therefore, it can't be an art film. Not that something like Portrait of Lady on Fire isn't an incredibly. Enjoyable movie to watch. I think that's a really pleasurable experience, but it's not fun in a way that this movie is. I mean, nothing is because this is totally its own thing. But this is like you're cackling, laughing at like weird, like fart jokes, right? And therefore, it can't be serious art. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but actually, it can, and that's fine. That's good. Like that's what we should be looking
0: for. That's exciting. I actually had like the reverse of this experience um, with a film I actually forgot to mention in our London and New York Film Festival podcast, which everyone should check out if you've not heard already. It's called Deerskin, and this is like a this is kind of a medium in- indie hit this year. It's a French indie comedy starring Jean Dujardin, who is the main guy from the artist that like black and white movie that won Best Picture a few years ago. And the concept of the film is he is a man who goes through a midlife crisis and becomes passionately obsessed with his deerskin jacket. I cannot explain the film any further than that. (laughs) It is very wild. It is like slightly influenced by Tarantino. If anything, I would recommend not watching the trailer and just watching the film because it's very entertaining and it's only 77 minutes long, which has a lot to recommend it. But that film, I watched it and I was like, oh, really good, weird, experimental French indie film. It was very entertaining. And then I looked up the director and the director is like, he's 50-50 between being an electronic music DJ and a filmmaker. And the films he makes are all very weird, surreal comedies. And like the one that I'd heard of was a movie called Rubber, which is a fake like schlocky B movie about an evil car tire that murders people. And it's like, that is not an art film. And there's no kind of, there's no stylistic divide between these films at all, apart from one of them is marketed as like a schlocky B movie at horror movie festivals and the other one's marketed at art film festivals because it stars a famous Frenchman. They are totally identical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's all a scam. It's yeah. just all a scam. Watch what you like. I mean, whatever. Yeah, it's just been entertaining to me to watch everyone's brain kind of explode trying to process like what I'm seeing. It's just a movie. It's all good. But yeah, it's this is w- the weirdest thing I've seen all year, for sure. Do
0: you have any final thoughts? I think we're good. I'm surprised by how short this episode is, but it sometimes happens where we just have all of our thoughts in order so much that we're just like, get it done.
1: <laughs> well, I think it is. I mean, this goes back to my critique of it is that I... I feel like thematically, I'm not fully there with it, which may just be that I need to rewatch it. But also I'm not like some movies like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which we obviously only did part of our film festival episode on, not the full episode. But like that, there was so much for me to dig my teeth into immediately with like the richness of the, you know, whatever. Whereas this, I was more just like, wow,
0: what It is really very much about the experience. Yes.
1: We recommend this film, obviously. Uh, go and check it out yourselves. It's platform releasing in the US so it should be quite a few places by now, but it will be expanding further, so go
0: get yourself a ticket. And, and it will it. be out in the UK in like January or some <laughs> shit. So...
1: <laughs> Sorry! God. Yes, and if you would like to... Uh, check out our film festival coverage from the past few weeks or listen to the uh, listener mail episode that we are about to record. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can
0: our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, You can find my work on The Daily Dot where I'm currently doing a lot of recaps for the Watchmen TV show. (laughs) And uh, you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at
1: ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.